Three Films on a Podcast has no claim of ownership on any film footage used in this episode. All film footage is owned in its entirety by the copyright holders and is used solely with the intent of film criticism, commentary, and education under fair use law. And just like every car in Too Fast, Too Furious, this podcast contains spoilers. Enjoy. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Three Films and a Podcast the show where three friends challenge each other to broaden their cinematic horizons through themed rounds. My name is Ben Lawhorn. I'm here in Salt Lake City, and I am joined as always by Matt Weiler down in Pleasant Grove. Hello there. And for the first time ever, that's it. As as far as hosts, Tyler is not here. Um, He will be back next week. So hopefully we can keep it together and we don't burn the podcast to the ground without him. But (laughs) this should be all right. Um, If you're Mm. new to the show, welcome um, this is, you know, a podcast that we kind of started out as basically we want it to be a movie club. The three of us were in a movie club ourselves and we decided to extend that out and start recording our conversations. And now you're listening or watching us, Spotify, YouTube, whatever. Um, and we just want to kind of invite everybody in for the conversation. So we appreciate you all listening and uh, being here with us. And speaking of being here with us, we have a returning guest. Tom is joining us from the Talking Pictures Trivia Podcast. Tom, thank you so much for coming back and uh, joining us again. Hello, man. Thank you for having me on. I'm excited to be here. It's a shame Tyler was taken by extraterrestrials on his way over to the podcast. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Yeah, it's a fitting kidnapping. And I always ask that your kidnappings be fitting. Exactly. It's very on brand. So Mm -hmm. this is good. Apologies to his family. Tyler went willingly. We want to be sensitive to his family because it's kind of a weird situation. But uh. yeah, yeah. He just decided to mess up the family room. He's like, I'm out of here. I don't want to clean this up. I'm going to go (laughs) against some aliens. So. Oh, that Tyler. Classic. We have to have 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 a talk with him. Yeah. (laughs) Whenever he returns, we'll have a talk. (laughs) Um, So yeah, Tom has been on our episode before. As we talked about, he joined us for the Apu trilogy, which was one of my favorite episodes. Um, Mm -hmm. We had a a great conversation about that. So if you want to hear Tom's clubhouse questions, you can go back and listen to the the Apu trilogy. Or if you're on YouTube, we have our whole clubhouse section playlist. You can just listen to to Tom's section there. So, um, but yeah, Tyler, like I said, isn't here, but he recently joined you guys, Tom, Mm -hmm. on Talking Pictures Trivia for the Close Encounters episode, which was a great listen. I, I really enjoyed a few aspects of it, but mainly that he didn't realize Bob Balaban <laughs> wasn't Richard Dreyfuss <laughs> for a majority yeah. of the movie. I thought that was fantastic. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. When that question came up, he's like, wait, he's in this. <laughs> yeah. He was curious why Richard Dreyfuss had such, had top billing <laughs> since he wasn't in most of the movie, not realizing that, you know, Richard Dreyfuss is not Bob Balaban and vice versa. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I thought that was great. And oh, also, man. Hopefully we won't have the issue here, but I think because like everyone it looked like a lot of people watch different versions of it, which we'll get into later. There's like we have mm. three versions of this movie. So I think oh. we're all on the director's cut here. Yes. We're, yes. we're in the version in which you don't see the inside of the spaceship at the end. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, yeah, we, yeah, we have like three different cuts, I think. And I'm sure we'll get into that. But yeah, definitely. <laughs> mm-hmm. But yeah, cool. So we're all in the same movie. We're all here. Um, yeah, so let's just uh, get into it. This is our first uh, episode about Spielberg. This is our, our newest round. We're talking about Spielberg. We um, we just finished up Kubrick. And before that, we... Um, why am I drawing a blank? Who did we talk about before Kubrick? Hitchcock. Hitchcock. How did I forget that? I have no idea. Alfred. 
Al. I can't let that go on the pod, so I got to restart that. <laughs> the whole Al. <laughs> um, yeah, we we are starting our Spielberg round this month. Uh, we just wrapped up Kubrick before, and just before that, we did old Al Hitchcock. Uh, we talked about three of his movies. So, yeah, we're getting into Spielberg, which I'm excited about. I think it works out great that this is all happening in June. I think, you know, he's the guy that started the summer blockbuster. So mm-hmm. I think this is the perfect timing for us to talk about Spielberg. Um, I chose him because he felt like the kind of guy like he Jaws is one of my favorite movies of all time. Um, and I, I feel like I had seen a lot of the hits with Spielberg. You know, I'd seen Jurassic Park, Schindler's List, like all the stuff that, you know, Spielberg for. But I realized I hadn't necessarily ventured out too much, especially into his earlier stuff. And Close Encounters is just like, you know, I mean, we have these movies where it's like, oh, I'll get around to that eventually. And you just never do. So this seemed like a great opportunity really just for me to get to watch this movie. That's why I picked Spielberg because I wanted to watch Close Encounters. So, um, yeah, that that's why I picked this. We haven't really done it ourselves as far as answering the clubhouse questions. I think we'll do that at some point, maybe for our like anniversary show. But, you know, to play my cards here, Spielberg would be my desert island director because I feel like there really isn't. I can't think of anyone who has more of a diverse uh, filmography than Spielberg. You know, we could watch E.T., we could have like the kids movies, the lighthearted hook, stuff like that. But if we're in the mood to get serious, we can throw on Schindler's List, like we can throw on Amistad, we can throw on Color Purple, you know, like we Lincoln. Yeah, Lincoln. Exactly. Like there's just there's so much. Obviously, he's just done a a bunch of stuff but i also just feel like he has the widest range for what you could want so yeah i don't know that that's why i picked spielberg i was excited to explore some movies that i hadn't seen before i'm really happy we watched close encounters um i'm going to throw it to you tom um just to kind of give a a brief explanation synopsis of the movie and just i'm kind of curious what your personal experience is with with close encounters i don't know if this was the first time you'd seen it or not or you know just just your experience with the movie Sure. So in terms of synopsis, the movie is about extraterrestrials who come and they make contact, not actually a a close encounter of the third kind, but, Mm -hmm. you know, a a contact with a number of people. And we're focused on Roy Neary, played by Richard Dreyfuss, who is a man. He's out and about in um, Indiana. He lives in Indiana, Mm, right? I got that right. So a line worker or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. He's, He's a line worker in Indiana. And he's, uh, you know, a small town guy with a family. He's married to Terry Gar, or Terry Gar is playing his wife. And th- these things contact him and he becomes kind of possessed with mm-hmm. wanting to see them again. And they sort of you get the impression that they've contacted a number of people and implanted this information in their head. And a few of them are able to realize that there's, the, you know, a devil's tower in Wyoming that they're, um, that they're being beckoned to. Mm-hmm. And so the, the quest of the movie is Roy and then uh, a woman who lives nearby, Jillian, played by Melinda Dillon. Yes. Um, and the two of them sort of team up to go and find whatever is on this mountain, you mm-hmm. know, which is, is the aliens. You know, they kind of go up the mountain to try and find them. And that's the, that's the journey of the movie. And my experience watching it, I, God, I, you know, I honestly don't know the first time I saw it. I, this, this happens with a lot of, uh, with a lot of movies I've seen mm-hmm. is that, yeah. uh, you know, the memory kind of becomes stretched through your yes, life. Yeah. <laughs> which, yeah. Which is why like movie, like not a tangent or anything. It is a tangent, but no, you know, why, my movies and, and whatnot are, are kind of as precious as kind of family memories, maybe not as precious, but they yeah. sort of have that same dimension. 
they mark um, great occurrences in your life, or at least important occurrences. But Mm -hmm. so I don't, I can't tell you what what my first impression was. Um, I could say watching it again, watching it for this, and then watching it a few weeks ago for for my own podcast. um, The movie has always struck me, at least you know, last few times I've seen it as being uh, not necessarily an allegory, but it's drawing from the same type of feeling of like being touched by God, right? That yeah. kind of mystical experience of, of being touched by God and just having to go up to that, that's mm-hmm. that, that force, whatever it is, right? It's, it's very much like, um, you know, like acts of the apostles when, when the Pentecostal kind of fire comes down and it possesses everyone in that mm-hmm. room and suddenly they're ecstatic. They're kind of filled with this, with this uh, joy that they can't really define or rationalize, but they just need to get to it or they yeah. need to stay with it. Mm-hmm. That, that to me was always this movie um, because it's, it's not, th- these people's feelings are never really explained in mm-hmm. any kind of detail. I mean, we don't really know why the aliens want them. Yeah. You know, it seems like they were picked at random and, you know, maybe they're picked at random um, and what they're going to do with them seems good, pe- at least peaceful, we're not quite sure what it is right Mm -hmm. and that was that's kind of what i always loved about this movie and i I like spielberg i don't think spielberg is um is a very deep filmmaker Mm -hmm. i think he's an i think he's a great kind of magician and in our our show notes i sent you uh pauline kell's review of his first film sugarland express Mm -hmm. where she's like this guy's like um he's a he's a prodigy he's brilliant he's a, a technical wizard which I think is true of this movie and you know all of his movies more mm-hmm. or less um but there isn't in even in something like Schindler's List there isn't this like uh he's not doing like what Scorsese does right Scorsese yeah. has these kind of different levels that he's exploring and if you see something like Taxi Driver there's a, there's almost like a thesis that Scorsese is working out Spielberg is is simpler than that but he is mm-hmm. maybe our best um best magician our best mm-hmm. Uh, uh, razzle dazzler in, yeah. in cinema mm-hmm. over the last um, however many years at this point, Jesus, fifty years, I think. Wow, um, that's crazy. Yeah, and the, the fact that he is the more or less the inventor of the blockbuster mm-hmm. through Jaws, and then also this movie made a bucket of money. I think it mm-hmm. saved Columbia Pictures more or less. I think yeah, <laughs> like, like they only opened it in two theaters initially, but like this sold mm-hmm. out at the Cinerama for like six weeks in a row, and then whatever the theater was in New York for four weeks. And then they finally went wide with it after that. Yeah. There was Mm -hmm. a like huge worry that this wasn't going to do well. And they actually had to um, borrow money from other studios in order to, to, to make it, but it made a bucket. So it keeps that kind of blockbuster thing going. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, while we could be kind of critical of blockbusters, that's, that's the the thing that people have been chasing for the the last 45 years. Yeah. Uh, The fact that Spielberg kind of does the blockbuster probably better than anyone else speaks to his, his kind of magical skill. It really does. And I mean, I'm glad you bring that up because we last month, we decided to have like an in-person watch party with our patrons. So we rented out a theater and I was just like, I was dead set on watching Jurassic Park because (laughs) this is this is a theater movie. You know, this is something to see on the big screen. I don't know that I saw it in theaters because I am a very timid moviegoer when it comes to anything that might scare me. So I don't don't remember (laughs) seeing it. And I feel like it's a movie I would. 
but I just knew at this point, like, this is just something you have to see on the screen. And you're right. I think he, he's a magician with that stuff. Like, I think he's, he's great. It might be surface, you know, it may not, you know, go too far below, you know, the surface as far as meaning or anything like that. Um, I think this movie, maybe as far as the stuff I've seen, maybe talks about that the most, you know, as far as a meaning for Spielberg, because I think it is kind of about, it can be perceived, I guess, as like the, an artist's obsession, you know, and I know he's talked about like that the Dreyfus character is kind of him, you know, or it's just like you get so obsessed with something and how it affects your family. Um, so yeah, this is like, you know, maybe one of the, the deeper films as far as like having a subtext to what he's talking about. And the fact that he's just like openly said like, yeah, that was, that's me, you know, that, that was like the obsession with like filmmaking with your career and how you kind of have to put everything else aside if you really want to get into this. And that was the Dreyfus character. Yeah. As far as, you know, for us, like this is the, the podcast is like set up essentially for us to watch something for the first time. So this was my first time seeing this movie. Um, I, I'm again, I mentioned it earlier, but I'm really glad that I picked this and that we got to watch this because it was something that always felt like a, a hole in my Spielberg, you know, filmography of the things I had seen for how much I, I, I enjoy his films. You know, he's just like, it's an easy, easy thing to put on. I think um, for, for a lot of it, Matt, how, how was this for you? I think this was also your first time. What, what was your impression of the film? Did it hit you? Did you enjoy it? Yeah. I mean, first I, I love the rounds where it's everyone's first viewing. Um, as I mean, it doesn't matter to me if someone's seen a movie before, but it's, it's cool to have everyone kind of uh, experience it for the first time together, mm-hmm. more or less. Um, I, I mean, so speaking of Spielberg, um, touching on Spielberg, I, I typed out a bunch of stuff trying to, explain how to art trying to articulate how my thoughts on Spielberg basically and mm-hmm. Tom you I feel like you've made it you dep- you uh articulated perfectly with him being a magician because yeah. I mean so we we covered Hitchcock we we covered Kubrick and those are two great directors for different reasons and they brought like so much to film um and storytelling and it's like I, I like to with, with this movie club pod I like to try to highlight like what does Spielberg have to offer you? What are, what are the Spielbergisms? What are you getting when you watch a Spielberg? And it is, it is like the magic. And yeah, he's not super deep, but I think there is something to be said with Spielberg and his reverence to filmmaking and storytelling. Mm-hmm. Uh, because you have blockbuster directors now that do not do the same type of filmmaking that Spielberg does as far as the medium and storytelling. Um, yeah. And not to throw Michael Bay under a bus, we're not we don't we don't clown on directors on here. But um, I feel like Spielberg uses the visuals. He, he is very much like a big thrills, big ideas. Like what what can I do to just like wow the audience here? Yeah. And I mean, you have Kubrick with 2001: A Space Odyssey. He did like some insane stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and from a moviegoer's perspective, and like a an art, you know, appreciator it's a significant work of art. Uh, Spielberg, I feel like tried to do the film equivalent of cocaine and (laughs) just to get people going back, Mm -hmm. uh, wanting more. And that's, what's, that's, what's kind of been fun, um, with, with Spielberg. Um, this was my first experience, uh, seeing it. Obviously we've seen this stuff remixed across all types of pop culture. Um, it's, it was fun to finally see the source of some of this, some of these things. Um, I'll never forget uh, Weird Al Yankovic carving the mashed potatoes <laughs> and saying the 
this means something. This is important <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> on UHF. Yes. <laughs> um, I love seeing that monkey toy, you know, going crazy uh, mm-hmm. when the that mm-hmm. first, uh, I guess, encounter happens. I also I just love in this era and maybe it's more of like a Spielbergism, but like just like that big, like excessive, messy house. Like mm-hmm. he takes he takes like a lived in scenario and just like times 100 like things are just pouring off the shelves. It seems in those movies. Um, and also another Spielbergism, I think, and maybe maybe this is prevalent in movies of this era, but I feel like product placement in his movies mm. is pretty gratuitous. Yeah, there's just so much of it. Uh, you'll have like a really cool shot. It's like, oh, this is a cool shot. And then you'll just see like a Budweiser can right there. It's like, oh, <laughs> yes. Now, now I want a Budweiser. I don't, I don't even drink. drink. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I want a Budweiser. Um, but uh, I, I love the, the ending with like the spaceship doing that musical, you know, thing. And mm-hmm. it reminded me of I think it was an interview. I can't remember what movie it was about, but Will Arnett was being interviewed. And they were like, somehow they went down this rabbit hole of like, if you were to uh, choose a, a children's board game to do a movie of, what would it be? And he said, Simon. The, <laughs> and at first, like, I mean, it, now I'm wondering if he's he was just like giving a reference to this movie. Yeah. But basically, he like did his impression of how that movie would go. He's like, yeah, this big thing would come down from space and it'd just be like boo boo and like people would like worship it and like try to follow it i'm like oh that's actually kind of how that movie ended exactly (laughs) that's awesome i really hope i can find that clip (laughs) um yeah i I feel like i I couldn't find the person but i feel like there is someone that worked on 2001 that also worked on this or at least like was inspired by because I think you can kind of see a little bit of, the, of those connections there as far as the detail and the, the production design. I mean, one of the other things I, I wanted to kind of get into was, you know, we talk about the Spielberg isms and really it's like, he's, there's always like a, an optimism, I guess, in his movies. It feels like, you know, like this is in my experience, like one of the first times that we have a movie with aliens where they aren't bad guys, you know, we're not necessarily like, scared of them per se you know like i mean they're they're curious they're leery but i in an interview he said this was a not a science fiction film but a science speculation film you Mm -hmm. know because he was really big into ufos growing up and just like kind of wanted to mix ufos and watergate like what if the government was covering it up and everything i was like oh that's that's interesting and obviously it kind of like evolved we can see where both those influences are but i was a real sort of ufo devotee in the 1970s and was really into the whole ufo phenomenon from everything i was reading so it was something for me that was science i think spielberg is always an optimist with his films um and you know this one you know this led in the end of this movie led into his idea for et which is like what if we traded someone what if we gave them richard dreyfus but they left us almost like an ambassador like what would that alien do here with us now and that was kind of like the you know the nest for the nest egg for uh coming up with et which i thought was like an interesting mm. thing you know i guess arguably one of the best spinoffs ever you know <laughs> et obvious yeah i that's a really good point the, the optimism is something that is in all of his films more or less right mm. it's, it's always and you know that may be part of the 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 appeal of them or the, the blockbustery 
ness of it is is that you know we kind of come out on top this movie is particularly optimistic in the sense that we don't have a villain right yeah. even the government that's mm-hmm. covering it up they're they they're also kind of behind the eight ball they don't mm-hmm. really know what's happening either and they're they're just doing their best and even when they put out the gas in Wyoming to knock people out. Yes. It, it, it's not, it doesn't even kill anything, right? It's yeah. just, it knocks the, like they won't even kill the cattle, you know, yeah, they're, just they're driving by and they're laying on the ground. It's like, Oh my God, they just shot all the, like they killed all these yeah. cattle. It's like, no, it's just a gas. They're no, out for six hours. Fine. I'll be back. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. And, and it's, it's odd because if I, I mean, I didn't pick up that at all. The kind of the, the Watergate influence mm, mm. here because it's, it doesn't really treat any of these government officials as, villains as you would think a, a watergate film yeah. or watergate inspired film would et mm-hmm. does that a little more et mm-hmm. has the, the the um military people are you know uh, uh, villains that they're trying to stop yeah. things they're trying to control mm-hmm. things here you know they're they're fairly gentle and in part because they don't know what they're really doing you know exactly I mean? um and so yeah that that kind of that optimism that kind of can do-ness mm-hmm. of of the characters but also you know the kind of whatever embracing of the human spirit, if you if you want to call it that. Yeah, that is in in all of his movies. I think it's especially true here, and I think that's probably why there there's such a draw, right? There mm-hmm. isn't that, um, you know, there isn't. There's everything's always hopeful. It always mm-hmm. works out. Hopefully, even even the Holocaust, kind of, <laughs> yeah. you know, works Self works cow. out. For, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. will have a, ha- a happy you know finish to that movie for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a that's an interesting perspective for him. You're right. There's not really a villain. The, all the the government people they really are just like curious and it seems like wanting to learn and wanting to connect with them. Whereas in ET, it's like let's get him out of here. We gotta get this thing. Like this is a dangerous whatever. But in this movie, like it's it's secretive, but they're not like trying to attack them or anything. They just like they're wanting to connect with them and see what happens. So, um, yeah. And it's, I mean, as far as Spielberg isms go, I, I noticed it felt like at the beginning of the movie, like he kind of has like his things, you know, like we're talking about like his optimism and things like that. But I think his visual storytelling is amazing because this was similar to me. You know, Jaws was one of the best accents in the world, you know, that the shark didn't work. It's like, all right, well, we got to rewrite this and we'll just hide <laughs> mm-hmm. it for a lot of the time. And then like, when we can get a shot, we will. And you know, it's not how it was originally supposed to be, but I think that's what made the movie what it is. It made it such like a fantastic movie. And I feel this came out like two years later, but that the, there was a similar theme with this where, you know, especially that first scene with Richard Dreyfus in the truck, you know, when he's driving, he's like looking at the map and the car lights come up behind him and he waves them around and they go around and then we get more lights that come up and he waves them around and they just start lifting up. And, you know, when you, when you step back from it, from you think about the film production, it was like, Oh, those are just like four lights on a rig. Like this, there's nothing there. They're just like four lights. But then like the beams come in through like the windshield and then the car starts rotating. It's all these things where we're not seeing anything. Like we don't know what's there, but we still are like having the emotional response of like, Oh my God, the aliens are right there with him. You know, this is crazy. This is happening. And that's where I think, you know, like we've, we've been hitting on over and over, but like, he's a, he's a magician. He's a visual storyteller. He does a great job with that. Um, same with, you know, I, I'm putting the notes about Jurassic park when we first, you know, they're going by the, the dangerous dinosaurs. And like, all it is is like leaves shaking. That's all it is. But with the sound design and everything, we are freaking out. It's like, oh my God, there's like, there's something in there that could kill you. It's like, no, they're just shaking leaves. That's it. But I, I think he's, he's, yeah, he's so good at this. I kind of want to talk about that a little more to see what you guys think. Like, we've hit on it a bunch already, but like, what makes Spielberg, 
movies, like what makes them like, what, like what boxes does he check off every time? Is there like a certain recipe that we can fall into? I think we've really hit on it with the optimism, but I'm just kind of mm-hmm. curious what else do you guys think when it comes to Spielberg, you know, that, that we know we're watching a Spielberg movie. I'll throw it to you, Tom. Sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Sure. Uh, um, well, the, the magic trick is set up, right? If we're using this, this metaphor, the magic trick mm-hmm. in that, that scene in particular, um, by having the truck that goes around and then we, yeah. we repeat that again. So he establishes a, a motive to you know, use a mi- musical metaphor, mm-hmm. he establishes a motive. It's the, the lights and the car goes around. Um, and he does that again. He puts that motive in again, but then he creates a variation, which is now they go up instead of around. And so he's, uh, he's visually telling this story by doing that, by, by mm-hmm. putting out the tracks for us to follow. A lot of metaphors yeah. are going into this. Um, and, and then, you know, we follow them and then there's a, a deviation, a change, something like that. Um, and in the end, it's in the end of the picture, there's, uh, that, that musical exchange between these two people. And he allows that kind of build over time. Mm-hmm. He doesn't really box that. And he allows that to have as much breath as possible. Yeah. Um, you know, he's, he's not in a rush, which is interesting and also uh, true of Jaws. Jaws, the, the accidental miracle of that mm-hmm. is, as you're mentioning is, is the shark doesn't come up. And so again, we're given this motive. There's something down there. We don't know what it is. We really want to see it. And we become, you know, more and more familiar with the mystery, but at the same time, um, the, the tension builds, right. And we're waiting for that closed cadence. We're waiting to see it to kind of, to, to exhale and move on. And I think a lot of, that's a lot how the magic works. It's sort of motive variation. That's great. How about you, Matt? Yeah. I mean, uh, along with that, I think, uh, and obviously there's exceptions, exceptions to, to this, but I think when you're sitting down to watch a Spielberg, uh, you're typically, you're in for an adventure. He's, he's a big adventure person. Like we talked about him basically inventing the blockbuster <laughs> and just, yeah, I mean the, the magic tricks, like, I, I feel like I want to say that years back I heard in origin story, if you will, of him, like messing around with his dad's camera with like an airplane and tilting it so that it looked like the plane was crashing. And, mm. um, and, and I feel like that has spilled over into everything that he's tries attempts to do. Like what, what can I do to just like blow this, like create such a crazy experience, yeah. you know, for who's viewing this. And I'm thinking about the, uh, let's see, it, it's when the, the aliens come back to the house of Barry and just the way that the lights are just like penetrating through the windows in yeah. that house and everything's going crazy. It's like, this is the most bizarre home intrusion I've ever seen. <laughs> really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's all with lights. And so mm-hmm. it's just, it's, it's crazy that the, the type, the magnitude he's able to bring to a scene like that with like such seemingly little effects. Um, yeah. It, it's just, it's just cool. And it's similarly, I mean, Jurassic park, you know, the, the practical effects are just insane in that movie. And so what he's able to do is, just create these great, just fun, uh, I guess, I mean, not to diminish it, but people usually, usually use popcorn as something that's like just surface, like yeah. stupid, stupid fun. But like he really makes like that popcorn experience of watching a movie. You know, also stupid fun is hard, right? Mm-hmm. To make it, to make good fun, to make a good magic trick is, is really difficult. Yeah. So, you know, um, I, I think that the, the idea of, 
is something surface or deeper than that, I, you know, most American movies are, are surface and most American movies aren't very good. Most movies are surface and most movies mm-hmm. aren't very good. So being, you know, the best magician out there is no slight. So this is the magic trick, huh? Illusion, Michael. Mm. Trick is something a whore does for money. Yeah, exactly. you know, that's yeah, it's it's um he is good at what he does, right? And and yeah. that's kind of what I appreciate. And I appreciate him more than than Kubrick even. Because mm. even though Kubrick's going for these kind of I don't know, profound thoughts, which I, I I'll just admit I'm not the biggest Kubrick fan. <laughs> you know, like I I thought like I you know, like two thousand one is supposed to be this big deep message about I like alien babies or something, mm-hmm. um the existence of man. And and it, it's just there isn't there isn't a recognizable character in that movie mm-hmm. at all, except for Hal, except yeah, for the exactly. you know, psychopathic computer. Uh, and, you know, I, I don't think you would ever get Spielberg either attempting that uh, pretense that Kubrick mm. attempts, but I don't think you would ever see Spielberg forget about people. And that's another True. quality of his films, um, even though the characters are um, not exactly unique. Mm-hmm. individuals they're, they're not they're not the extraordinary people uh mm-hmm. you know of history with possibly the exception of, of oscar schindler um yet they are they're kind of nuanced they're textured when, when he does he when he does it well mm-hmm. and th- that to me is just far more var- um, valuable than you know like like we're going to watch the, the guy get old and then he's going to become a space baby. <laughs> yes. And this exactly. profound, a profound space baby, you know? <laughs> oh man. When, you know, before Matt got involved with this, Tyler and I were doing this ourselves, with the movie watching thing. And we did 2001 and I just texted him right after. And it's like, what the hell was that? <laughs> like it was visually amazing. The stuff he pulled off was great. And like, hmm. I have no idea what just happened there at the end, but yeah, like, I think that's, you know, to, to speak to Spielberg, like that's the reason he has a 50 year career, you know, it might be surface, but he's great at what he does. And people enjoy that. Mm-hmm. Um, Matt, you mentioned the aliens showing up at Barry's house. And again, like another interview with Spielberg, he says like, when he thinks about close encounters, that's the image he gets in his head is Barry opening the door and all that light flooding in because an adult, you know, I mean, Spielberg even said like the, the theme for him for the movie is like a childlike exploration and when that door opens, he's drawn to it. He wants to go see what it is. Whereas adults are like, shut the door, close the blinds. Like we gotta be safe. You know, it's like, but that's, you know, he, he wanted to have this kid who just like wants to explore and see what it is. And to tie into that, I mean, that's also what happened with Richard Dreyfus. Like, I guess he heard about the movie while they were shooting Jaws and he wanted the role, but Spielberg didn't want him to have it. Cause he couldn't see him as anything other than his character in Jaws. And he like, he talked to Steve McQueen who turned it down. Cause he said, he can't cry on demand. You know, he's like, <laughs> you need to have that. Like that's in there. You know, Spielberg's like, I'll take it out. He's like, no, you have to have that in there. I just can't do it. Um, and Dreyfus talks about like, he'd walk by his office, be like, Hey, Al Pacino's not that great. You know, you may not want him, whatever. <laughs> he's not but, as funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, he had made the film originally for a, a, a life, a man of life experience like Gene Hackman and, something like that, a, a lifer in the military. And then one day I got the part, and I knew I got the part, because I said to Stephen, you need a child. It takes a child to get into that obsession, to want to go, and to, yes, to leave his family. 
Dreyfus is a, an adult. He's a man baby, so to speak, where he just gets <laughs> this obsession. He wants to go explore and see. I mean, along, along with that specifically with Richard Dreyfus, um, mm-hmm. but like getting into sort of what makes Spielberg movies maybe different from other like blockbusters is, and I already mentioned this, like maybe a more reverence to, to filmmaking and storytelling that you don't get from other blockbuster creators. And specifically with Dreyfus, there's that scene uh, towards the beginning where he's like the camera's stuck on his hands and he's like feverishly putting in like film into his camera mm-hmm. before it like pans up to his like face. And there's so much information that you're getting very subtly right there about yeah. his character that evolves throughout the movie where he's feverishly carving the clay on his table mm-hmm running outside screaming at the sky and then eventually you know filling his living room with just just big model like <laughs> he's he's building this character from the beginning and you don't get that type of uh character development in those that type of subtle ways in those shots in that information given in other blockbusters and so when you when you're comparing it to like i don't know some of the blockbusters of today that like literally is just you know cgi explosions all that mm-hmm. um that's what i feel like probably sets spielberg apart from from those i think it's great tom yeah what were you gonna say tom yeah i was i was gonna agree and especially how they introduce it's devil's tower right i have that yeah. right the name yeah the yeah. thing yeah um the, the way they introduce it is he's modeling it and the camera kind of pans down to the television mm-hmm. where there's mm-hmm. a, a news report being released so it's a way of kind of avoiding exposition um and also kind of communicating smoothly the you know the, the kind of information um that that needs to be communicated so it, you know transitions to him um it's also with his character that kind of childlike you know the childlike roy mm-hmm. um, <laughs> which makes him so different from from other blockbuster protagonists protagonists tend to be uh very competent that's why we like them especially in blockbusters mm-hmm. you know even in westerns right it's the guy who draws the fastest who's mm, yeah mm-hmm. uh and with this, he's not really that competent at anything. You know, I, I think in the original cut, he's shown to be pretty good at his job. He's yes. a good lineman. Um, I, I don't know if anybody watching the movie aspires to that, but you know, uh, but in in the cut we watch, that's not even really covered. It's not really mm-hmm. that important. Um, what's what's and he's also not that articulate a guy. He can't sure. explain what's happening, right? Um, he's not like Brad Pitt in World War Z, where he could look at the thing <laughs> and before anybody else go like, all right, here's the problem. That that wall is not stable. <laughs> yeah, whatever exactly. the problem <laughs> is that poor Brad Pitt had to deal with yeah. when being chased by zombies and an incompetent <laughs> director. Um, you know, he he doesn't he he isn't articulate in that way. He doesn't command the the center stage. Mm-hmm. Um and he's also like kind of a doughy guy. <laughs> you know, yeah. so, yeah, you don't really need to steam with a shirt off. Um, but all those all those factors make him a very unlikely protagonist for such a successful blockbuster. Mm-hmm. And um and I, I think what you know you pointed out that you need a child who needs to be like a, a, a man baby to do yeah. this, is that this experience has kind of rendered him dumb. And I don't mean dumb and lacking intelligence. I mean dumb in the sense that he is without ability to express himself and understand what's happening to him yeah right he's not the person who leads with confidence he is now the person who is in a state of ecstatic distress mm. and we're, you know we're watching the ecstatic distress 
unravel and watching somebody deal with it. And he ends up dealing with it well in, in the sense that he, you know, he's the one who succeeds, right? He's the one who gets to the alien spaceship when mm-hmm. the other people who are possessed with this, this knowledge don't make it up there. Um, I mean, Melinda Dillon does, but it's, you know, a little different. She, yeah. she has a different goal. Yeah, yeah. Um, true. Or Melinda, Melinda Dillon's character, I should say. She has a different goal. Um, but that ends up kind of being part of, I think, the, the Spielberg, uh, the, the Spielberg thing is that we actually do get an everyman and an everyman in every way. It's not an everyman who's also highly competent. Mm-hmm. It is somebody <laughs> very much like a, us yes. who would be, who would be rendered dumb in this situation. Who would be rendered, you know, um, probably exactly like Roy, uh, Roy is in this mm-hmm. uh, in this film. Roy, right? Yeah, I believe mm-hmm. so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, and I think that's that's also part of the the appeal of this movie and the appeal of um, Roy Neary, yeah, and the appeal of Spielberg more broadly. Yeah, I, I think all those points are super valid, and like it reminds me again of like another actor that he was thinking of was jack nicholson and that's you know again where i agree with stephen king where it's like you can't cast him because he's already you just assume he's crazy we talked about this <laughs> on our shining episode but he's there for the interview it's like oh this guy's already losing it and he hasn't even gotten to the overlook you know yeah. and so like to that point like i agree with stephen king i get it obviously i still think it's a great movie and he was wonderful in it but i i get that point and mm-hmm. you know dreyfus said the same thing to to spielberg where he's like Jack Nicholson's crazy. Like you can't have it. You can't cast him for this. Like people won't believe him. And I think this is perfect for that because I, while we were watching this, it's funny. We talked earlier, Tommy brought up that he's very like surface and a magician because the whole scene where he's like destroying his family room, you know, like getting the trash and throwing it in there and all the plants and taking the chicken wire and stuff to me, it was like a very condensed version of what the shining is. Like this guy is obsessed with something and he is losing his mind. Mm-hmm. And this is what we're watching is his downfall right now. But we're watching the Spielberg version of it, you know, where he's never, he's not going to kill his family. <laughs> like he's not going that mm-hmm. crazy, but he is just so obsessed with something right now that he has like blinders on and he can't focus on anything else. Um, and again, like that just kind of came back to me of like the Spielberg. He always just has humanity in his films, no matter what, you know, like it's, mm-hmm. I mean, this is it's silly and I'm just going to say it anyway. Like one of my favorites of his just as a child was hook. And even at the end, like he doesn't die. He just like jumps into the alligator. It's like, Oh, so he could still be alive. Like people don't like, there's always just like some sense of optimism and humanity with his movies. But I'm curious how you guys would explain this movie to someone who was like watching it for the first time now. Cause I really didn't know exactly what I was getting into but, you know, we're we're always trying to, like, get people to watch stuff with us and, you know, short of them listening to this whole episode, just kind of like what what's the elevator pitch now for Close Encounters, you know, and what does it offer people? Is there something that you could even try to compare it to? I mean, this is crazy. This came out the same year as Star Wars, but these mm-hmm. are very different science fiction movies. So like you could tell someone that, but it's like, you, you know, you have the, the complete I feel like polar opposites of what the science fiction offers you, you know, where it's either Mm -hmm. in space, space opera, or it has to do with aliens kind of thing. But yeah, I don't know. I'm just kind of curious how you guys would pitch this movie to somebody, Tom, I'll I'll throw it to you to see what you like. Yeah. How would you tell someone about close encounters? Sure. Well, if, if we make the obvious comparison to star Wars, as you said, star Wars is about the, the mythical and I think that this movie is about the psycho-religious, so the psychological mm. aspect mm. of of religion. While Star Wars is about the the mythical aspect, which is in religion. It's yeah, 
myth and religion don't always go hand in hand, but they, they often do. Um, and I, I think that would be that it's a movie about the kind of possession of effective knowledge. Which mm. I, I don't know if that's a great elevator pitch. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's yeah. very accurate. I love yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that, that's what this movie is about. It's about an individual, psychological, inarticulable response to, to a stimulus. Mm. That, that's what the, you know, the movie is. He can't articulate it. And it's, it, it's entirely emotional, right? Yeah. And, you know, when we try to articulate our emotions, it's always kind of, we're always going to sh- fall short of the goal, right? Until you yourself feel them. Um, I think that's what this movie is about. And it's about trying to transcend where you are because of that reason, not because of, of, of something you can state, but because of something you feel and how, mm-hmm. you know, kind of emotion allows you to transcend, which is kind of a, a meta context, right? The yeah. movies allow you to transcend. And the best movies do it because of it, what it touches in you, not because it, you know, proved a, a thesis or something like that. Um, and, and, you know, by comparison, Star Wars is, is you know, the unveiling of the, the Joseph Campbell thing, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's how the myth structure works. That's kind of in us, right? We recognize that. We even maybe think of ourselves as embodying those myths, mm-hmm. but it's, it's very different from a private, effective, emotional response and both of those movies end up kind of speaking to i think the the subconscious of the viewer that we all Mm. kind of star in our own movies yeah and we we experience life by narrativizing our experiences and this is the star wars side of it and we also experience life through emotional register you know Mm. the the profound moments in our lives are are things of great emotional weight tragic or or comic tragic or joyful rather. And I think that's what this movie brings us. It brings us the, the extreme of that emotional register, which I, I would think of as effective knowledge. Yeah. That's awesome. Matt, good luck following that up. What's your yeah. pitch for close encounters? <laughs> better, better pick the mic up from the ground. <laughs> no. Um, uh, yeah. I, I was thinking about this cause I I was excited to watch this because I, I was familiar with many of the pop culture references of it, but I don't feel like I've ever been like, it hasn't been on my watch list. I've never like set out to watch it. Mm-hmm. Um, it happened to be on, you know, Ben, you selected it and I was excited to watch it from that standpoint. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, from a, from a very surface level, I think if I were to call up my buddies and say, Hey, let's watch close encounter of the third kind, it would, it would be along the lines of, look, this is a relic of the, you know, 70s. It's got all the product placement and optimism of a Spielberg movie. <laughs> um, and it's got some like cool, you know, iconic shots. I'd probably take that angle. Like we're in a yeah. museum, basically. We're we're watching this movie and it. It's not like, you know, it's not Casablanca, but it's it's something, a product of its time that informed a lot of choices that modern day directors make something loud just drove by um but uh that that would maybe be my surface take but i mean the other if i if i were to you know call my parents and try to talk to them about it mm-hmm. um it, it would draw on some of the things that we've already talked about the, the humanity that spielberg brings out in the characters you mean you brought up the shining and i guess just yeah comparing dreyfus and some of the other characters in spielberg's movies just re- relatable in mm-hmm. Marvel comics did this too. Just like 
they they didn't have the Clark Kent's come down from the sky and be gods among people. He had, you know, Spider-Man at your high school and he's yes. the smartest kid in your class and he doesn't fit in socially, but now he has superpowers and mm-hmm. he has to keep his identity secret. So I feel like there's there is a, a huge appeal and it's subconscious. I don't think people necessarily realize that, oh, that's why I love this movie. That's why I relate to this guy. But it is like the vulnerability, the flawed uh, character that people relate to. And this movie is, I think, fun for that reason, because, yeah, I mean, Tom articulated it best. Like, it's not a very competent protagonist. And in a comparison to to Star Wars, like Luke's not the most competent guy either until I mean, the end, like he uses the force and is able to like he's a he's a decent pilot. Um, Mm -hmm. But he thinks he's he thinks he's way better of a pilot than he is. And uh, it's it's the it's the humanity in Luke that I've always attached to. And some people, I mean, with the, with the sequel trilogy and everything really trashed on like the last Jedi because of the, the, the change or the mm-hmm. humanity that he showed, uh, the flaws that he showed. But to me, like that's what made Luke great always um, from a relatability standpoint. Yeah. And the, you know, the flawless do good, a guy that he was kind of building up to be in Return of the Jedi just wasn't nearly as interesting or relatable to me. So that's kind of where my take would go is you, you have these characters that, you know, you may not realize that if you're just drawn to, you relate to, and they're endearing for that reason. Mm-hmm. Um, like you're, you're happy for Richard Dreyfuss at the end. It's like, wait a <laughs> second. He's got a family. <laughs> yeah. He's got a family. He's abandoned them. And luckily, I mean, they, they kind of leave that the rest of it off screen. The rest of that drama is off screen. So we're not seeing like the repercussions of him leaving the planet. But uh, you you see like the thrill in his eyes and like, it feels like he's getting answers, you know, to kind of go along with uh, what Tom mentioned with the, the juxtaposition to religion. Mm -hmm. It's like, he's finally getting the answers. He's, he's having that, that itch satisfied. And uh, as an audience, you're happy for him. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. I think that is a good thing that we don't have to see his family, the repercussions of it all. You know, this is like that'll be in Close Encounters of the Fourth Kind. Yeah, Close Encounters <laughs> Endgame. That's when it's like <laughs> yeah, yeah. Every, everyone's <laughs> dealing with how he's gone now. Like, um, yeah, no, I think that's a that's a really good point. I, I, I mean, I've heard, you know, in the research for this episode, Spielberg said if he did it now, he wouldn't have had him go on the ship. And I'm like, well, that's great then that you made it when you did, because he just like he wouldn't have sent him off to like ruin whatever happened with the family like well that's a totally different movie and just doesn't it doesn't hit the same you know if he has this obsession for two hours then he's like "Ah, i'm good it's fine i saw the ship you know i can get out of here it's like no this guy is this is all he wants right now and he's he is so obsessed that he has forgotten about his family and any like you know responsibilities or priorities he had like this has become his number one thing and yeah, you're right. I think it's a, it's a great point. We're happy for him. And then this credits start rolling. It's like, well, what about his wife and kids? You're like, you don't really <laughs> yeah. think about it till after, but in the moment, you're like, yeah, I'm happy for him. He gets to go. Yeah. And, and I like, I think this is, you know, we've been talking about his movies being fairly surface and I mean that complimentary, mm-hmm. um, but I, I think this movie is probably his deepest, uh, at least of the ones I've seen. I haven't seen ready player one yet, but I'm going to, you know, um, reassert that claim yeah. <laughs> uh, regardless. Um, and I, I think that part of that is 
the fact that what he does, even though we are happy for him, mm-hmm. um, in part because we're amazed by the spectacle that Spielberg mm-hmm. presents to us, yeah. um, but we are happy for him that he, he gets to go on the ship, um, but he does, you know, abandon his family. And I think this is a dumber movie if he just goes, ah, I'm good, and, and yeah. goes home, yeah. right? Which, you know, I, I think Spielberg then takes the, the complication out of of possession mm. you know mm-hmm. you know if, you, if possession is just something you could get over right like yeah. it's like well oh, oh okay i'll stop it's like as if nicholas cage and leaving las vegas just stopped drinking <laughs> yeah. but all right i'm yeah. all right that was all good right. yeah. no more <laughs> cold turkey i'm done <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah it takes it kind of takes the that little bit of of ambiguity out of it mm-hmm. Right. Um, and I, you know, I don't, I think this movie is more mystery than ambiguity yeah. mystery in the sense that we don't know, really know what he's, what these aliens want or are doing. Um, ambiguity, I think is, is much more related to, um, the way we feel about events or people on screen. Um, but I think that bit of ambiguity is, is very powerful and it speaks to the, the central themes of the movie, this idea of, of obsession and transcendence. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, that's all super accurate. And I, I think also Spielberg, he, obviously he knows what he's doing. That's the that's the hot take of the episode. Spielberg is a good director. But, <laughs> um, but before he leaves, like we see all the other people who have been missing come back. So it's almost like even subconsciously, we know he'll be back eventually. So it's like he's going to be gone forever. But, you know, with the, the planes, whatever, that have been gone since the 40s or something like that. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, all the pilots come walking out and they haven't aged at all. And it's like, that's that's awesome all these people are here but again i mean we should keep throwing it to marvel but then it becomes the captain america thing where he's just like the same age and everyone else around him is aging like that's that's such a fun story to think about it's like let's follow those pilots now as they like get back into society and see what things are like now but i think mm-hmm. spielberg is just kind of set it in our in our minds in the back of our minds like he'll be fine like these aliens aren't killing anybody they're just like mm-hmm. going on a quick adventure he'll be back maybe in like a week like it was for Barry like he wasn't gone that long it didn't seem but then you know these pilots were gone for 30 years something like that 40 years yeah. so who knows but he'll be back eventually and I think that's just that little reassurance that Spielberg always wants to leave there you know that like it, everything will be okay eventually so one of the other things I want to talk about we kind of hit on it before like on, on your episode Tom of talking pictures I think you know there's four of you and I think you watch two versions of the movie and there's three of this movie. There's the theatrical mm-hmm. cut. Um, there's the special edition, which uh, Columbia, I guess, financed because, I mean, they wanted to re-release it. And then Spielberg, I think, just didn't get some of the clips that he wanted, like the ship that's in the in the um, desert. You know, they didn't get that on the initial theatrical cut. But Columbia mm-hmm. would only do it if they would also show the inside of the ship, which Spielberg did not want to do. But he knew mm-hmm. this was the only way he was going to get his money. So they did it they put it out and then they put out a third version which is you know everything that they reshot and added in but then spielberg took out the inside of the ship which i think was really really smart you know like he's talked about this like this should be for the people to you know come up with their imagination of what it's like inside we don't need to tell people exactly what it is but i kind of just want to talk about the bigger picture of director's cuts you know and i think we're in the we're in the stage now where it kind of feels like if people want to tell a seven hour story they'll get like a mini series you know or we and we just had like the Zack snyder cut come out you know where people are like let him release his version <laughs> so like we've been surrounded by it. there's been some famous versions like 
the Richard Donner's Superman two, you know, his, his cut, the, I don't know how many different cuts there are of a uh, blade runner now, you know, oh, there's yeah. so many, but I kind of just want to see what you guys think about director's cuts. Are there any that stick out to you? Are there any that you feel like have definitely improved with the initial, you know, version was, and just overall, how do we feel about it? You know, there's, there's a lot of pushback on the special edition star Wars movies because George Lucas just kept like throwing stuff in. He's like, well, the technology didn't exist that I wanted. And so now, you know, we have this elephant creature walking in front of the cantina. <laughs> it's like, okay, but I don't know that we needed that, you know? So anyways, I'm just kind of curious to to hear your thoughts, Matt. I'm going to throw it to you. Cause I kind of want to see, you know, just having talked about star Wars and I, I know you love the star Wars franchise. I'm just curious specifically what your thoughts are on that. And then just the overall bigger picture of director's cuts. I mean, the, the thing that was thrilling about star Wars when they released the special editions is it felt like, it, it was it was fun to have something that you already loved come out again that had new things to experience in them. Mm-hmm. At least, I mean, I was young when they came out, with the special editions came out. So yeah. there was, I mean, I guess a childlike excitement to like see something new in these movies. Um, and now, like as an adult and having seen you know a bunch of movies, I I am okay with the you know the the artist you know continuing work on their work with the uh i guess with the with the exception that they still that we still have uh, the ability to view the original version Mm, and appreciate the original version that it that it stays intact um as it was um because i mean some people will appreciate exactly what they put out the first time um and I know that to some artists, their work may never be completed. At some point, you have to just finish it. And part yeah. of what makes a, a good director a good director is knowing what to cut, um, what's necessary, what's not necessary. And I feel like that's sort of what the what the industry is. Like when it comes to great directors, like, oh, all this great footage had to be cut left on the cutting room floor. And it's like, well, great. Like, that's that'll be great to watch, you know, as an extra feature on my DVD. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I love the product that you came out with. but. As far as like re-releasing something with like some tweaks, um, I think it just depends on, you know, if you like the tweaks or don't like the tweaks. Uh, But as long as you can consume the original, then I'm I'm not super against it. Um, I do. I like the idea that Lord of the Rings took where part of what made Lord of the Rings cool for like for me um, was just the spectacle of seeing this world built out before me. And part of going and seeing that movie was just like losing yourself in that world. Mm-hmm. And so it, it was less about like whether it made it a better movie or not. And more about how long can I stay in this world? Yeah. And uh, like prolonging it. So to me, like the extended versions made sense. Uh, I would love to see them bankroll a special edition of Jaws where you go down to his lair <laughs> and there's a lady shark, you know, in his bed, <laughs> empty beer cans, Metallica posters on the wall. Half-eaten corpses. Dealing with his day-to-day life. What's going on? <laughs> but yeah, I, I think in, in that regard, like you said, Ben, showing the inside of the ship or going down to Jaws Lair, seeing like too much information that you don't need takes away from some of the, I guess, the the suspense or, or spectacle of what you are allowed to see. Yeah. Yeah, the, the idea of different versions of something... Um, you know, kind of end, endlessly being cut. I, I feel that's particularly modern more than anything. I mean, if you 
And it also, it's particularly modern. And it also, I think, arrives out of this idea of uh, the auteur theory. There's, a, there's an author of a movie who is the director who, who brings this forward. And this person has authority over whatever the material is and so forth. And this is like fairly modern, you know, um, if you think of like um, great literature before whatever, 1500 or something like that, um, the idea that somebody would have like authority over a work and they would control the story and, you know, we would see what they really intentionally wanted originally mm -hmm. would be like kind of ridiculous. I mean, um, even most plays in the, the early modern period, which certainly after 1500, they just didn't have the author's name, even on the things that were published. And, you know, when you see those same like Shakespeare plays recycled in uh, in the later 17th and 18th centuries, I don't know if you've read 18th century versions of Shakespeare, but what they do is they just rewrite stuff that they don't like. And, they, you <laughs> yeah. know, like, if you, like the Tempest of Shakespeare and the Tempest of um, the Tempest of uh, William Davino, who, who rewrote it, I think, in the 1670s, are like, there's like another, there's another, the, the villain has um another child and there's mm -hmm. just another the, like the hero has another child and it's like oh i thought people would like this so we just added it in <laughs> um the the tate version of king lear has a happy ending now oh. the, you know <laughs> just when you know um and i i think i don't think anybody there really thought of like well we need the original we mm. need to do it the way shakespeare wanted it's just yeah. kind of like we know these memes we know these these characters <laughs> let's just do stuff it's it's far closer probably to like Arthurian legend where it's, mm -hmm. you know, whoever could, who could ever get a ink and pen could write whatever legend they wanted. There was no idea of, of canonicity or an authority generated from that. Um, you know, this is, it, and it, it's interesting. A good example of this juxtaposing the past to our time is um, there's this one of the Canterbury tales, which used to be published all the time, you know, mm -hmm. in, in temporary editions, uh, scholars realized it wasn't Chaucer who wrote it. And it is gone. It's not. Nobody publishes it anymore. Yeah, it's just like, well, Chaucer didn't write it. It, it is not to be read. And it's kind of like the guy who wrote it used Chaucer's name because Chaucer's name was famous. He wasn't yeah. interested, presumably, not interested in kind of fame. He was interested in getting the, the damn thing read. And that would usually happen, you know, with, mm -hmm. with kind of poems and, and what have you, is that you would put the name of an authority there so that people would... You know, like the Song of Solomon. The mm -hmm. Song of Solomon is like supposedly written by Solomon. Probably not written by Solomon. Probably, it's yeah. the guy. Ghost yeah, writer. The guy. The, yeah. <laughs> Solomon's ghost the guy. Writer. Yeah. The guy. The guy put it there so that people would would see it. And with films, and I think this is probably also a product of, of copyright, which is an 18th century invention, more or less. Um, what we approach films with, especially if it's like a great director like Spielberg or, or quote unquote great uh, Kubrick. Um, is that these people have have authority over the work in a way that I don't think most people in history thought of work as mm. um, as being invested with an mm. authority. And so when we look at like the various editions of things, there's this um, kind of game we're playing with the director where we're going like, yeah, yeah, you are, you know, you're the authority and you're dealing with the system and the system doesn't really want you to, you know, to do your thing because it's it, the system wants what the system wants. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it's kind of a fun ride where we go through all of the, let's say the, the various editions of Blade Runner 
which I'm, I'm also not a big Blade Runner fan, but you know, <laughs> so I, and I've seen a number of these editions. So it's always like, Oh God, here we go. Again. But, um, uh, yeah, but, but with that there, it's kind of like, well, what's the, what's like the real vision of Blade Runner? What is it that the director wanted, right? Mm-hmm. As opposed to what he was kind of forced to do or forced Harrison Ford to do, you know, that type of thing. What did the director want? And so this idea of, of alternate versions, alternate cuts, and, and all that type of thing, I think is, um, I, I think it is in negotiation with an audience that sees the director as an author and an authority mm-hmm. over the work. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I, I think that is very, very particular to movies and has actually spread out, you know, now to books and whatnot. Yeah. Um, you know, you can see with the Star Wars stuff, right? What's canon and what's legend? It's kind mm-hmm. of a book none of it happened I, you know what, you, <laughs> what what story do you it's like just read that yeah yeah it's all it's all made up but the idea of like well this is canon this is not canon mm-hmm. george lucas has has endowed what's her name kennedy kathleen mm-hmm. kennedy? kennedy yeah 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 with with the power to to put canon on on top of things like she she's become a papal figure almost yeah. um that that i think is is mm-hmm. It's something that's very interesting, but I also think it's it's particularly and peculiar, peculiar. It's particularly modern. I'll just say that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and that, I mean, also, you know, kind of hints or you know, our discussion we had about the Shining and adaptations, and basically, like every movie is essentially just like the director's cut of their version of that book or whatever it is mm-hmm. they're adapting. Mm-hmm. So that's a a bigger conversation we don't need to get into. But like, <laughs> they're they're never doing it word for word they're just doing their version of this thing so yeah i agree mm-hmm. with both of you guys i think it's you know if we're able to still see the original that's the ideal we we did a, a review of the the snyder cut and i think our overall overall consensus was just like i'm i'm glad Zack snyder got to do it you know that that's great mm-hmm. i'm glad like his is a little different where he just kind of got obviously taken away at the end because of a tragedy and his his version wasn't put out so i'm glad that that happened but um, yeah, I agree. You know, if we can get just more time, you know, you know, in middle earth or wherever it's like, yeah, this is, mm-hmm. this is good. There are, there are good versions of it. Um, mm-hmm. one thing that surprised me having not seen this and, uh, you know, seeing the, the title cards pop up was just how much we saw Francois Truffaut in this movie. I thought it was just going to be like a in and out one scene kind of thing. You know, I didn't expect him to be there so much, but um, just cause I think we know him obviously so much through his directing work, having recently gone through the Hitchcock round, I, I watched, um, the Hitchcock Truffaut documentary where Truffaut and Hitchcock, I mean, Truffaut just got Hitchcock to sit down with a translator and they just went through every single one of his movies and Truffaut was just like asking him questions, you know, just like picking his brain, which was, it was essentially like the prototype podcast you know it's just like <laughs> let's sit down and record this conversation mm-hmm. and maybe people will listen to it someday mm-hmm. um and it's like it's amazing the book's great i mean i learned about it in school and it's just like it, it's just seeing these two people who are like-minded as far as directors go and just like talking to each other and just really diving deep into what they did and then so to see Truffaut in close encounters made me think like oh maybe the roles have kind of been reversed now where spielberg you know is wanting him to come on and like learn from him because again this is like kind of his second feature film like i know he did some tv movies with duel and sugarland express but um i think wasn't jaws's first actual just like theatrical feature film i believe what did sugarland express not get released theatrically 
was that television? It may, I thought it was a TV movie um, oh, okay. that may have gotten put out. No, I guess mm-hmm. it was. Yeah, Sugarland was his first. Yeah, so, so this would be his third, his third then. one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I mean, still obviously very green, very new to the, like the theatrical directing. Um, but I just I just kind of thought it'd be an interesting topic to kind of talk about director cameos. You know, we see a lot with certain directors, like again Hitchcock. He that was he was notorious for that. Mm-hmm. pun intended um and then like you know tarantino who's always you know <laughs> putting himself in his own movies and- what flavor is this knock it off julie what i don't need you to tell me how fucking good my coffee is okay i'm the one who buys it i know how good it is bonnie goes shopping she buys shit i buy the gourmet expensive stuff because when i drink it i want to taste it kevin smith things like that so i just kind of thought it'd be fun if we could come up with just some i i examples of directors who are showing up in like other people's movies or you know in their own as well um i think those are always just like it's kind of a fun meta maybe like the first kind of easter egg that we had in film you know was directors showing up in their stuff so um tom it, what what directors stick out to you as far as like making an on-screen appearance um the two that come to mind just because they're very violent uh and they're also in the 70s is roman Polanski in chinatown mm-hmm. um where he, he comes on and most of Chinatown, Jack Nicholson has like a, a, a scar on his nose. He's a bandage mm-hmm. on his nose. And there's a scene where he's trying to break into something and Roman Polanski cuts his nose open. You know, he plays the character. Mm-hmm. So it's, it, it kind of, um, it, I imagine that that's sort of the relationship between director and actor in, <laughs> yeah, in some way, yeah, exactly. <laughs> a metaphor for it anyway. <laughs> um, and and so that's like a, that was a little fun. Uh, the the haunting one, the scary one, is Scorsese in Taxi Driver. Oh, Do you yeah. guys remember that? Where it's it's a brutal scene, but it's basically uh, it, it's not really part of the central narrative. But Taxi Driver, Travis Bickle has has taken this guy played by Martin Scorsese to his apartment, mm-hmm. and in and he's sitting in the back of the cab, and and he's looking up, and he's like, "My wife is cheating on me right now," and he has a gun, and he's like, "I'm going to." And he describes the things he's going to do with mm-hmm. the gun to her in, in lurid detail. Um, you know, and he makes, he makes um, Travis Bickle keep the meter on mm. so that, that he can, uh, he can sit there in the car. Um, and it's a, it's a really strange and kind of interesting scene because it really helps build the environment that a whole movie's about like the madness of New York city. Yeah. You know, that it, like Travis Bickle's craziness does not compare to the craziness of the environment he has found himself. In. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and Scorsese kind of helps make that happen mm-hmm. in that cameo with that scene. And it, it's, he's probably the most disturbed character we meet in that movie. Um, and so those are my, my kind of two examples, both violent ones, a little more, uh, one's maybe a little lighter. The other one's yeah, like, it's real dark something else when you're the craziest <laughs> character in taxi driver you know, yes. it's like, <laughs> that's quite the bar to set um how about you mad you come up with some um i mean i i uh i recognize hitchcock you know appearing in most of his movies in in some s- subtle capacity um the one that came up uh fairly recently was i, I love seeing frank oz in knives out i know he's oh. You know, yeah. he's been a voice actor and he's he's done some other acting credits, but um always love seeing Frank Oz. So yeah, even though he just came in and, and left, um seeing him with that ensemble was just great. He was he, he was reading the will, is that right? Was yeah. that him? Yep. Yeah. yeah. 
yeah, he was he was awesome in that. He was super fun. Um, yeah, the ones I thought of were uh, just because it's always I don't know. He's always so interesting to see on screen as Orson Welles in the Muppet movie. Um, going back to our first round of unsung gems, Rob Reiner being the doctor in Mixed Nuts. Oh, that was kind of mm-hmm. cool. I know he kind of started out as an actor, but I feel like he really became a director later on. Like, a, yeah, kind of the same as like Ron Howard. Like, we know he started as an actor, but he really, I think, just kind of evolved into mainly just being a director. So I still kind of see that as like a director cameo. Yeah. For um, sure. And then I just had to shout out my favorite one of all time, which is Harold Ramis showing up in Orange County <laughs> uh, as the dean of admissions and like them just getting him just like super whacked out on drugs and my, one of my favorite lines in any of the movies ever. She's like, before you do that, uh, Sean, you're my same height. That is neat. <laughs> As they're both sitting down next to each other. Like I just, Harold Ramis is so great. Again, I mean, no, it's uh, like, yeah. like, and it's another one where like actor slash director, but that was just one of my favorites, um, mm-hmm. ever. I love that. So, um, I mean, yeah, I think it was been an awesome discussion on close encounters. I wanted to like kind of open up the floor away from my topics and see if there's anything else you guys wanted to to hit on before we wrap it up. Yeah, I, I, you know, my, I do think this is actually his deepest movie. He being Spielberg mm-hmm. to play the, the, the pronoun game. Um, and I, I keep, I found what I found so interesting about this. And I, I kind of talked about this already. I talked about it a lot on, on my podcast was the the kind of deep sympathies between this and and Christian mysticism, mm. especially the kind of high middle age stuff. I mean, mysticism kind of has it has the desert manifestations in like the third fourth century, second third fourth century. Um, but then in like the the eleventh, twelfth, thirteenth, it's also kind of reemerging there. And there's you know a lot of people who are writing about it at the time mm-hmm. and from the, you know, the kind of stuff I've read, uh, you know, the, like, um, you know, uh, uh, Bernard of Clairvaux or, um, uh, God, what's her name? Um, Kilregard, uh, the, these different people, um, Bonaventure is another one who they have this kind of idea of like, being consumed with God and then rising up towards him. Hmm. Right. There's this kind of like, it, yeah. it's usually like the mind's ascent towards God. I think that was the name of Bonaventure's hmm. book from the, the 12th century. And, you know, and that's this, this kind of idea is that there's this effective or emotional knowledge. And that takes you up, that rises you up towards God. And it's all this sort of mental pseudo Gnostic kind of experience. It's almost kind of on the border of being, uh, of being Gnostic, which is a, a bit of uh, a bit of like surrender the flesh, right? Like yeah. the, the mind is everything. Um, and it's usually filtered through these kind of emotional experiences, so these, these, this kind of sudden contact with God, St. Paul on the road to Damascus, right? Who's, who's suddenly cast down when Jesus appears to him and he's immediately converted. He immediately becomes, becomes a Christian. Mm-hmm. Um, that mm-hmm. seems to be, something like what happens to Roy on the road to, you know, whatever, fixing the lines. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. You know, uh, and, and the other thing that, that jumped out at me too was how similar the, these people's experience are also not only to the kind of like the, the Catholic mystics of, of the high middle ages, but also that kind of enthusiasm uh, that you see manifesting in kind of revivalist style Protestant ministries and things like that mm-hmm. um william james the, the the harvard psychologist writes about this and the, the varieties of religious experience one of his books from the the very early part of the the 20th century 
where he's talking about this this sort of um, the, these different interviews he's had with people. He's a psychologist, so mm. he's not he's not a religious scholar, but he's interested in religion via the 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 way it affects people's psychology, etc. And um, it's always this kind of like, like unarticulated, joyful thing where you are, um, you know, where you're, you're not, it's not dull submission to, to religion or to God or something like that. But instead it's this like emotional and, and practical deference to kind of the universe as a whole. And this sort of joyful running and wanting to share this this feeling of understanding and being with the universe as a whole. Mm-hmm. And I think both of those types of um, I don't want to say types of literature, but maybe types of experience that seem to be kind of bottled up in this movie. Yeah. And I don't think Spielberg's doing that intentionally. You know, I don't I don't know what his religious background is. I I, I doubt if it's anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's probably very similar to his relationship towards cinema right that he has that kind of that that effective enthusiastic experience there and we kind of covered this earlier but that was my always my reading of this movie well i think it is his his most complex and most interesting movie maybe it's some his most fun um but I, i do think it's actually probably far more complex and interesting even than something like schindler's list which is dealing with a far more far more difficult topic um, and I think that's why it it kind of touches on this way we deal with the transcendent. And the movie ends with the, the main character literally transcending. You know, <laughs> he goes from like his wife to this like really attractive woman who, you know, never seems to wear a bra to like these <laughs> these like white ethereal beings filled with light that take him literally up into up out of the atmosphere. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that seems to be this kind of mark. And it's also very sensual. Like Melinda Dillon is pretty sexy in this movie, mm-hmm. um, you know. And when they share uh, sunburns, they sh- you know they show each other their sunburns. Like her, it's her chest is sunburned, and you know she kind of shows them that. And there's this real sensuality to it, yeah, right? Yeah, it's kind of there's like a sexual charge there, and I think that's part of it, and I think that's part of this this experience. Yeah, I th- yeah. I mean, that, that's all excellent I, I i thought about a little bit about that as far as like the religious aspect because it felt like the first time when Drivus has that interaction am i remembering correctly there were like some people already just like sitting out on the side of the road like watching what was happening mm-hmm. and it just kind of felt like you know i mean i don't want to like label stuff but you know kind of like the people that would subscribe to the national Enquirer kind of people, you know, like, just like the UFOs, yeah. like, Oh, we were right. We were vindicated. Yeah. You know? it's like, they kind of felt like those people were there. And it's like, Oh, this is like their time. You know, like, yeah, we see, we mm-hmm. told you guys, like we did get, you know, taken up and we're back. So I, I thought that was like an interesting aspect of it. it was like, Oh, this is their maybe deity or their version of that. You know, or it's like, yes, mm-hmm. this is what I believe in. I've been telling you guys about, there's a, a greater being and, you know the aliens whatever so i thought yeah i thought that was kind of uh, an interesting angle i guess to to showcase in the movie um matt how about you were there any other thoughts you had on close encounters that you want to hit on um i mean nothing too deep there are just some some scenes that i felt like just needed to be addressed i I loved i loved when they're they're in these this room with all this technology and computers and they start talking about like longitudes and latitudes and they're like 
someone needs to fight. Where's a globe? We need a globe. <laughs> yeah. It's like they're like panicking for a globe. They're like <laughs> burst through a door and there's like a globe sitting in the middle of a room. It's like, mm-hmm. man, 1977 is a different time. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. There's no way to navigate longitudes and latitudes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so by a globe. <laughs> I love that too. Yeah. Um, that was interesting that you guys brought up Tom, on your episode where Bob Balaban's like career as a cartographer really just got thrown to the side for him to be just this translator the whole time. Yeah. And then like, he finally comes through in the end. He's like, you guys, like I, I can do this. Like this is a thing yeah. I can do. It's like, Oh yeah. I forgot that, that was you help us out here. You know, but he just gets mm-hmm. like pushed to the side so early on. It's like, I'm a cartographer. It's like, great, but you speak French also. Right. Like that's all we really care about right now is if you can yeah. speak French. So um, mm-hmm. yeah, sorry, Matt, go ahead. No, that's, that's great. Um, the other, the other question I had was, uh, so this movie shows these people who are obsessed um, with with this communication that they've received from these aliens, this message that they keep trying to scribble or depe- depict in any way possible, mm-hmm. whether it's a sculpture or drawing. And I just wondered, like, we've seen that remixed so many times now. We've seen it in, you know, Stranger Things, that yeah. uh, that bird bird box, bird box. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the the Marvel show Agents of Shield did a little bit of it. I, mm. I feel like we've seen or a lot of horror movies do it now, like where yeah. they're scribbling all these crazy things. Is this the first instance where that sort of thing happened, or wh- where did that inspiration come from? This idea that there's something communicating with you and you're depicting it. Yeah, something that like, you just you can't get out of your head at all, and it's almost like you've got to put out on paper or in your mashed potatoes or whatever, you know, it's like, hmm. you've got to get this out there. Cause yeah, like the Melinda Del- Dillon character, she has a ton of artwork all over her walls, just like all these different versions um, of devil's tower. And it's just like, Oh, it's so interesting that that's like the only way that they're able to, it feels like the only way they're able to deal with this is just like, I have to get this out there. And again, so that, it's the line, but she's like, I don't, I don't know what this means. Like it means something, but I don't know exactly what this means, but just like this obsessive yeah. need to, to continually just like express that. Yeah. It punctuates the mystery. And I was just wondering if you guys had seen that anywhere before, before this movie. I don't, I don't know. I, I, I'm thinking about that. I don't, I don't know if I've seen exactly that trope of like, I'm, I'm writing something out and I don't know what it means. And somebody needs to, you know, and it means something significant. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's not just like a poem or, you mm-hmm. know, a piece of music or something like that. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. Is there another, what's an, what would be like another alien movie where they could possibly do that? I have no, I have no idea. This, mm-hmm. I mean, this is, do they do it in plan nine? <laughs> I think they might oh. do something like that in plan nine. <laughs> I just recently saw that and it didn't see the whole thing. Plan nine. Hmm why why would i um but there, there's something like that where they're i don't know it, it also movie doesn't make a lot of sense where they're, they're kind of like there's like a couple who are like zapped and now they they sense zombies or something like that I, maybe <laughs> but i yeah I, I don't remember um it being exactly like what what spielberg's doing here uh and along that along that uh train of thought um i was curious We've seen aliens depicted, you know, in many different ways. But I feel like this this look that Spielberg depicts kind of lasted the test of time and kind of became 
sort of the ubiquitous view of what we see as aliens even today, just like the adopted, you know, fantasy version of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I've seen like early, earlier, like 60s movies where some aliens are just like, they're basically just humanoids with different colored skin and like strange mustaches or whatever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, is what, what was the earliest version of this alien? Is this, is this it? Like, is it like Coke kind of defined what Santa looked like um, mm. from their advertisements? Is this that for the alien? Yeah, I think it was Thomas Nash, right? Who did, Co- who did um, Santa? Um, is that right, Matt? But anyway, I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I think he was the, he was the cartoonist who I think came up with the Santa Claus and he was, you know, he also came up with the, uh, the, the symbol of the democratic party. <laughs> um, but Anyway, let me let me see. I'm not sure if like what would you call this? This is the whatever the the like white alien. Yeah, I feel like we saw a couple different ones too because that first one that comes out seems like the adult of the group. You know, with the long kind of wiry arms and stuff. Yeah, Yeah. Uh, and then I saw you know just like again like in reading about it, the rest of them are played by uh, eight to twelve year old girls in like gray Mm -hmm. suits. And he only wanted girls because he felt like they would walk a little bit uh, with, I, I don't know, a better form than a bunch of boys, you know, like more gracefully. So um, I feel like that alien that we see at the end who does like the hand symbols for the music, that felt like a very rough sketch for E.T., you know, with kind of like the elongated mm-hmm. face, you know, where we, we see that. So I thought that was kind of interesting to see. But um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think it's a, a great question. It's definitely something we've we've adopted. So I, I looked it up here. This is Wikipedia. So, you know, take that for what it's worth. But it's it's the gray alien. And the mm. first kind of illustration of it came from a an abduction encounter. Uh, Barney and Betty Hill in New Hampshire in 1961, mm. who claimed they were they were abducted and that they came, you know, they described the alien as that like gray humanoid dome thing. Mm. Yeah, it's kind of in this movie there's you know the alien figures seem to be a play on that a little bit um but i guess that's that's where it is and it's the uh and before that of course is the the roswell stuff from the late 1940s but so yeah i guess this is this is probably fairly recently this idea of like the humanoid alien or whatnot sure before then it was you know um like guys in jumpsuits or even John, like John Carter, right? Yeah. Right. John yeah. Carter is, is an alien story from the 19th century, but everybody's just sort of human looking, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, speaking of that, the only thing I want to bring up that I thought was interesting was, um, we get a guy he has a cameo towards the end, but he is the, I want to make sure I get his name right. Is it, uh, J Allen Hynek? Um, and he was a UFOologist, um, like hired by the government to basically like, for any of these, you know, sightings, they would go and basically try to debunk them or just like explain what it was. And, you know, that's what he did for a, a living was like hired by the government and went around and did that. And then at some point he said that there was about 10% of them that he just could not explain at all. Like there's absolutely no reason that it would have happened or anything like the stories matching up and people have never met all that kind of stuff. And he, uh, basically like accidentally converted himself into believing, you know, in mm-hmm. aliens and like mm-hmm. this extraterrestrial species, what I thought was really interesting. And, um, he, he wrote a book about it and uh, that's where the title for closing counters of the third kind like comes from is from oh. him. And 
He has a cool mm-hmm. little cameo at the end there. He's the guy. He's kind of in a blue suit. He kind of has like the Colonel Sanders goatee or whatever <laughs> as he's like walking up and in, in between everybody. But I thought it was cool. He had a cameo, but Spielberg said he just kind of like picked his brain as much as he could to kind of find out stuff. But like, it's such an interesting job to go around and be hired to try to debunk stuff and then just like come across things that you <laughs> cannot explain. You're like, I quit. I can't do this job because there are mm-hmm. things I, I just can't, you know, and that's just, that's just so interesting to me. I think just that the history of this and just someone who could do that, you know, like, yeah. It, it's also interesting that the United States government thought they needed to debunk mm-hmm. alien conspiracy theories. Yes. Like, oh, we need a guy on this. This stuff needs to be debunked <laughs> or yeah. else. Yeah. You know, the commies will win. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, well, I mean, this has been awesome, Tom. Thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. I love having you on here. Um, oh yeah. I love being on here. Thank you for having me. This has been great. Of course. Yeah. Well, I definitely want to have you back on and I know I just came on your guys's pod for Shin Godzilla, which was a lot of fun. So that should hopefully be out around the same time as this. I'm not sure exactly when in June sometime, but Oh yeah. It's, um, I mean, let me see if I could find a date. Yeah. Yeah. No worries. That was, a, talking, I'll find a date. No, was fine. That was a really fun <laughs> episode to do. Mm-hmm. Matt, I know you're, you're going on their pod, uh, coming up, but it's, it's, it's been fun just to work with you guys a lot. I know KJ's coming on later for our Miyazaki for spirited away. So that'd be cool. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. appreciate everyone who's been here listening. Tom, do you want to, while you're looking up the date, I don't know if you want to plug the pod and where they can sure. find you guys. Sure. Um, our, podcast is talking pictures trivia so wherever you get your podcasts uh that's where you'll get this we also i run a second podcast uh, talking pictures trivia b-side uh where we go into the movies in a little more detail kind of do more more theory and philosophy and things like that um you can find us on twitter um at talking pictures trivia at talking studios you can find me on twitter at thomas layman 15 and come listen um ben's been on uh everybody's been on yeah. <laughs> on this podcast well by the time yeah by the time you come on matt everybody will have been on yeah so uh the Shin godzilla episode yeah it'll be fun uh where what other ones have you been on ben i came on for um, Shin world godzilla of apu. and uh, apu. yeah world yeah, of world apu. Apu. Mm-hmm. And yeah tyler did a uh, close encounters so mm-hmm. it's it's a it's yes, a great it's right. podcast though sorry go ahead I was going to say, and Tyler's on the, the Close Encounters one. So if you want to hear mm. more, if you want to get, if you want to hear Tyler's opinion on Close Encounters, <laughs> which you couldn't bother to share. Don't listen right. to the podcast. Please part come of. on. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> listen to Talking Pictures yeah. Trivia. Listen to ours, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I was just going to say, it's a, it's a great podcast. I love listening to it. I think the, the conceit behind it is awesome, where it's just like, we use these questions, you know, in a trivia format to kind of like spark the conversation. So super fun podcast, highly recommend it. Um, I assume if you're listening to us, you know where you can find us just everywhere at three film pod. Thank you everyone for participating and joining us you know, on this adventure, on this journey. Yeah. It's been, been a lot of fun and looking forward to what we've got coming up. So thanks again, Tom, and we will see you next week. See ya. My favorite. Terry, you shouldn't have. George, when are you going to start taking things a little more seriously?
I mean, you've been wandering aimlessly from job to job ever since I've known you. If you could just get that overactive imagination of yours to work for you instead of against you, maybe you could... What are you doing? This means something. This is important. <laughs>